Today I get to try to preach from one of, if not the favorite story I have in Scripture. I'll be in Matthew 14, if you want to go there. Matthew 14, and, and where I am is in the latter part of the chapter, latter middle, familiar story where Jesus walks on the water. And I, I don't know why this has long been one of my favorites, but I, I, I assume that it has something to do with the fact that just like any good portion of Scripture, the Lord uses it. Every time I look at it, I see something different. But it's also a reminder, you know, we tend to throw out that nothing is impossible for God. And nothing is. So when I look at this story and see Jesus walking on the water, that is clearly a miracle because no one can walk on the water. But at the same time, it's not so shocking because it's Jesus, and Jesus is God, and nothing is impossible for God. But the more striking part of the story for me is Jesus isn't the only one who walked on the water. Peter walked on the water too. Peter human as human can be was allowed and enabled to walk on the water and that's a reminder that the scripture in Luke tells us that with God nothing is impossible and it's a reminder that for us for those of us who are God's people with him, with his help with his power, nothing is impossible for us So I'm, I'm at chapter 22, I'm sorry, chapter 14, verse 22. I'll read the story and give us some context and then try to get into uh, to what's on my heart. And straightway Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship and to go before him unto the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit. And they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I. Be not afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. And he said, Come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? And when they were coming to the ship, the wind ceased. Then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, Of a truth, thou art the Son of God. So when was the last time you walked on water? I'm going to uh, kind of address some things, and it may seem a, a little backwards, but uh, I'll have a point to it. I want to look at... Uh, 
after Peter began to sink, he'd, he'd walked on the water, he'd done the miraculous, and then he began to sink, and he cried out to the Lord to save him. And verse 31, And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? That word doubt in the Greek is distazo. And it's kind of a, a compound of two different words. One is dis, which means twice or again. And stazo, the, the best I could find, it seems to be like a derivative of the word stasis, which is kind of the English equivalent to stasis, from where we would get status or station. So it, it's a stand. It's a position. Often in context, it's, it's a contrary position, a, a place of contention. But it's, it's a place to stand. So distazo, twice standing, means that you've got your foot in two places. Or you're, you're trying to stand on two different grounds. You follow me? And that is now translated doubt. Or to waver. Wavering opinions. And that brought me to mind in James chapter 1. I'll read a little bit of this too. James, the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. So double-minded, I looked that up too. That is, I don't know if I can pronounce that, dipsuko. Basically, it's another compound word, again with dis, meaning twice or again. So the same word as distazo. And then sukos uh, has to do with the psyche. It's actually where P-S-Y-C-H-O-S is the way it's spelled in the English transliteration. Looks a lot like the word psychic or psychology. So again, minded. Twice minded. Double minded. So a man that has... A disposition of his mind in two different realms is unstable in all his ways. Yes. Now Jesus asked Peter, why did you doubt? Distazo. Why did you stand in two different realms? Amen. Amen. You see the parallel I'm drawing? Is that we tend to think of double-minded? We 
in our current cultural context, we tend to think of that as being like doublespeak or hypocritical. But I'm going to venture to say that James is not talking about a double-minded man as someone who's malicious or malevolent in intent or hypocritical even, but rather someone who is in doubt. They've had a secondary positioning of their mind. Just like Peter took a stand in two different positions and was accused of doubting. So with that in mind, let's let's go back to Matthew 14 and kind of set the scene a little bit. We know that just prior to this, Jesus has fed the 5,000. Now we say he's fed the 5,000, but scripture makes it clear that it was 5,000 men that were fed, not including women and children in the multitude. So we say Jesus fed the 5,000, but truth be told, it could have been closer to 10, maybe even 15,000. With five loaves and two fish. Not exactly what you would call a bountiful supply. But again, with God, nothing shall be impossible. So the disciples have just witnessed Jesus do an amazing, astounding miracle to take virtually zero resources and make them abound to a multitude of probably more than 10,000 people. And it doesn't even say that that multitude each got a morsel. It says they were all filled. And then, with the leftovers, there were 12 baskets full. Meaning that if he had 12 disciples, each of the disciples then had enough for several more meals. So they had just seen this miraculous, victorious manifestation of the deity of Jesus Christ. As he had... had provided basically something out of nothing virtually and fresh on the tails of this victory think about it if you had been there we've been in services all of us where the manifestation of the power of God is almost palpable How do you feel when you leave one of those services? How do you feel when you've been in the presence of God and you know it? You kind of leave on a little bit of a high, right? You leave with this almost ethereal feeling. You you don't want to leave. And yet Scripture tells us that immediately afterward and straightway, Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship. Constrained. Constrained means compelled, commanded, ordered, urged. There's one sense in which it could be with a threat of force. I don't think Jesus said, get on the boat or I'm going to hurt you. Um, But that underscores the gravity of what it means to say that Jesus constrained them. It was not like we would do and say, no, that's all right, don't wait for me, y'all go on ahead. Don't inconvenience yourselves waiting for me. No, he said, seriously guys, go on. I'll catch up, but go. 
Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship. And what strikes me about that is we have already seen in the scripture up to this point various times in which, yes, Jesus put off his deity and, and chose not to exercise his full power at all times while he was on the earth. But he still had access to it. And we've seen several times where he was able to discern the thoughts and minds of the heart. Several times where over and over again he predicted his own death. He knew what was coming for him and for everyone else. He knew the plan. So he constrained them to get onto this ship without him knowing that the weather was not going to be favorable. Let that sink in for a minute. So, now the evening has come, the ship is out on the sea, and it says, and in the fourth watch of the night, the fourth watch of the night, the night generally, traditionally, was divided into either three or four watches, and the fourth watch would have been the last one. It would have been the one right before dawn. Some, some commentators suggest that it was probably between 3 and 6 a.m. The wind was contrary, and it, Scripture tells us the, the ship was being tossed about on the waves. We've seen another time in Scripture where there was a storm at sea and the sea was tossed about on the waves. And Jesus was asleep in the ship. And the disciples all came to him and said, How can you sleep? Don't you know that we're dying out here? It was remarkable that he could sleep in the middle of the chaos of one of those little fishing boats being thrown about on the waves of the sea like a toy. So now with Jesus not in the boat, you can imagine that if the wind is contrary and the ship is being tossed about on the sea, that these disciples have not slept. So it's the end of the night. It's almost morning. It's between 3 and 6 a.m. They're tired. They're weary. They've been fighting to keep the ship upright all night long. It's the fourth watch of the night. Their strength is depleted. They desperately need rest. And that's when Jesus comes to them. And one other thing in that is a lot of times when people talk about this, they'll talk about the storms of life or the storm on the sea. And I've always thought about that, that Jesus came to them in the midst of the storm. There was no storm on the sea. The scripture made it clear that when Jesus was in the boat with them, that it was storming. 
But in this one, there, there was no storm. There was no thunder. There was no rain. There was no lightning. The wind was contrary. It was windy. There's a lot of difference in windy and stormy. But the wind was contrary. And so how does that relate to us? I would say that personally and also as a church, we need to be prepared. Because particularly here for Grace Church, we have just recently been privileged to see a manifestation of God's power in an incredible way. We've had the privilege of being able to, as we mentioned earlier, ordain two men into ministry in a summer. When there, are, when there are churches that have not ordained a single person in ten or more years. And we know that that's not something we contrive. We're just putting a stamp of approval on what God has done. So if we ordain a man, it's because God is doing something. And someone last week mentioned to me that uh, their mother had said something about grace while we were at the ordination, said, well, they're just a little, they're just a small little church. And she told her mother, well, apparently they're doing something right. They've ordained two. (laughs) And we could ride that high for a while. But there's still work to do. And when there is work to do, sometimes Jesus constrains us to go on. We will be urged, we will be pushed, we will be compelled to go forward when maybe we'd much rather sit in the afterglow of what we've experienced and what we've witnessed. And there will be other times when we may, when we have seen other victorious manifestations of the power of God. And Lord willing, there will be times in the future where we will experience other glorious manifestations of God's power. And we'll be tempted to stay in the afterglow. Like like Peter and the disciples wanted to stay and build a tabernacle when Christ was transfigured. It's good for us to be here. But even then, Jesus said, well, actually, God said, no, you go. And likewise, Christ as the head of our body will compel us to keep going, to go on. But the other part of that is that when he compels us to go on, he also knows what's ahead for us. He knows the plan that he has for us. And he knows that very often, maybe even most often, when we set sail on some new adventure right after a great success, the wind will be contrary. We know that our enemy prowls about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. (laughs) 
See, and to, and to me, the, the importance and the distinction between a storm and the contrary wind is that a storm is something that they just come. There's nothing we can do about that. But we, can, we can weather a storm, and, and the, we can't control the wind either. But I feel like it's a different kind of circumstance. Storms in life come, and they pass. But particularly in the world that we live in today, when God shows himself powerful, either to us individually in our individual capacities as, as sons and daughters of God, or demonstrates his power through his church or to his church, as we move forward, our enemy wants to deflate and take the wind out of our sails. Our enemy does not want us riding that high horse and does not want us to remember what it felt like to be on top of the mountain, what it felt like to see God provide in miraculous ways. He wants to send a contrary wind. So that the ship that we're sailing in, I'm speaking in metaphors, which is okay, Jesus spoke in metaphor, so I think I can get away with it. But the ship that we're in will be tossed about on the waves, and when the wind is contrary, we focus all of our attention on keeping the boat upright. Keep in mind, Jesus had told them to go to the other side. There is a work to do. Go ahead and cross the sea, and I'll meet you on the other side. But in the midst of the contrary wind, they stopped even considering getting to the other side instead they were focused just on keeping the boat upright they lost sight of the vision of the work that they had before them and were focused on their circumstances and that's a human reaction and I I guess I don't say that as much as a teaching thing for us but as a warning that we need to be ready for contrary winds to come upon us. We need to be ready for contrary winds to fall upon grace and to toss us about. But also in all of our individual lives, if we purpose in our hearts to be faithful to God and to follow Him, then our enemy will send a contrary wind. What does contrary mean? Opposing. Whatever our purpose is, that contrary wind, its purpose will be to deter us from our purpose. So maybe our purpose is to try to train preachers a contrary wind will deter us from that. Take our eyes off of that goal and set us on sites for just survival. Maybe our purpose is to grow the kingdom somehow, to be faithful in, in preaching the word that, that, the, that the kingdom may grow, that souls may be saved. And if that is our purpose and our vision, the contrary wind will take our eyes off of that. 
and cause us to tend to become isolationists. Perhaps our purpose is to go from this place to, as I mentioned last week, to work on taking a bit of a mobile Jerusalem somewhere else. And that contrary wind will deter us from that purpose. That wind will come. Will we be ready to respond to it? So I say that as a word of warning, especially since we have just, like the disciples, we've just experienced the manifestation of the power of God. That wind is going to hit even harder. Because we are compelled to keep going. And in our pursuit of that vision that we have, and maybe even in our pursuit of just fighting the contrary winds, we may get weary. We may come to the end of our strength. The disciples did. They went into the wee hours of the morning, 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., fourth watch of the night. And certainly they must have thought, we can't, we can't keep fighting. So they're thinking about the possibility that they may capsize at any time just because their strength will wear out. This is not in scripture, but you can imagine they, they were men just like we're human. They had their frailties and, and they sensed that their strength is waning Maybe the guys on one side of the ship are are weaker than the other side, so they're tending to capsize one way or the other. Maybe they're starting to bicker because that's what people do in times of strife, right? Because I'm doing everything I can and it's not working, so you must not be working as hard as me, brother. Row harder, John. You, You think Peter said, John, just quit praying and row. internal strife and certainly they were faced with their mortality because if that boat capsizes because the other part of that is keep in mind the wind was making the waves boisterous and most of us have have been in the ocean at least a little bit even even when the waves aren't boisterous in the ocean the waves are hard to fight. So if you swim out there, you work to develop a rhythm because the waves have a natural rhythm. So when the waves are low, that's when you come up and take a breath. Because if you don't time it right, you'll be taking a breath and then the water will knock you under. You can't fight the waves. So you work to develop a rhythm. Now how much harder is that when the waves are boisterous? When the wind is knocking them every which way, they're higher because the power of the wind is behind them, and they're not rhythmic. They're unstable. You can't find that rhythm. You can't fight the waves. Even when it's peaceful, you can't fight the waves. And now it's even harder. 
and you're already tired, you can't survive. These men thought they were going to drown. And in the face of that, they look out and they see a man walking to them on the water, doing the impossible. And the, the Jews were superstitious people. Yes. Yes. So it's not surprising if you take into mind all of that context that they would look out and see him and he looks like Jesus. But surely death is coming for us. And now we're seeing a ghost. Now we're seeing a specter. Now we're seeing a vision of our impending death. I wonder why they cried out with fear. I mean, if we put ourselves in in their place, Scripture can seem very cold sometimes when it's just a narrative and it's something that we've heard over and over again all of our lives it seems very clinical but if you really work to put yourself in their mentality in their place it comes alive in a whole different way that they look out and they see Jesus coming to them and they think he's a ghost and yet Peter for all the hard knocks we give Peter about how impetuous he could be and how he went from one extreme to the other. We need to remember that Peter's faith, given to him by God, was pretty incredible. I mean, Peter is the first one that said, you are the Christ. That's why it's Peter's great confession. But of all, of the, all the ones on the boat, Peter is the one that said, Lord, if it's really you, because Jesus said, don't be afraid, it's, it's me. If it's really you, compel me to do something miraculous. Peter knew he couldn't walk on water. I mean, we just talked about the fact they knew they were going to die. So he knew that the water was rough anyway. And yet he says, Lord, if it's you... Call me to come to you on the water. Command me to do the impossible. Empower me to do something miraculous beyond my comprehension or my strength. What does that say for Peter's faith that he knew that if that's the Lord, that he can call me to do that? So his faith was pretty incredible and and Jesus answered in kind and says, come. And so Peter steps down out of the boat onto the water and he walked on the water. And he was walking to Jesus. Again, just like when they got in the boat, they had this purpose in mind of getting to the other side, of a work they had to do on the other side. But the waves caused them to take their eyes off of that goal. Peter stepped out of the boat and was walking on the water, walking toward Jesus, until he looked down and saw that the waves were boisterous. He took his eyes off Jesus and he began to sink. 
and kind of wrapping up the whole crux of my thoughts and why I went to, to James earlier. We've been on a mountaintop. And there will be other times, Lord willing, where we will experience a mountaintop type experience. And we will be compelled to move forward, to go on. And contrary winds will come to fight us at every turn. And when we're tired and we're at the end of our strength, sometimes it's not until then that Jesus will come and compel us to do the impossible. Compel us to do the miraculous. There's also a lesson there that it is okay for us to ask the Lord to let us do something miraculous. Now he has to command it. We can't just say, oh look, Peter walked on the water. Jesus wants us to do impossible things. But when there's a necessity, it's okay for us to ask for the power to do what we can't, what is not humanly possible. But Peter starts to sink and Jesus saves him. He says, why did you doubt? Why did you take two different stands? See, where there was the sense in which his faith was that, Lord, if it be you, compel me to come to you on the water. And a tacit understanding in that phrase is if it's you, I know that with your power and with your help, I can do the impossible. I can walk on the water. You will see to it and I will keep my eyes on you. And he had his foot firmly planted there. But he experienced that the wind was contrary. He saw that the waves were boisterous. And he remembered how hard in his own strength he had rowed and fought to keep that ship upright. And the sense of desperation sunk in. And he began to look again at his self-reliance. And he planted a foot there. Why did you doubt? Why did you take two stands, Peter? Why did you try to trust me and yourself? When you knew that there was no way you could walk on water, why didn't you put all your trust in me? The scripture tells us this over and over again that a house divided against itself cannot stand. That you cannot, a man cannot serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other. You can't serve God and mammon. Mammon typically is referred to as money, but it's the things of the world. It's self-reliance. 
So we're told over and over again that you can't take two stands. You're either for the Lord or you're for yourself. To try to stand on both is the definition of doubt. To have the dual mindset that you can rely on God but you can also rely on yourself. That's the double-minded man that James is speaking of. Exactly how did he word it? The double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And before that, he says, For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed, just like that boat in the contrary wind. Let not that man, let not that man that stands on both think that he'll receive anything of the Lord. And right before this, you know, he, he says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith. Why would it be that the double-minded man should expect to receive nothing from the Lord? That's not punitive. That's because... Well, number one, if, if God grants requests to that unstable man, that double-minded man, then when that prayer is answered, was that God's doing or was it his self-reliance to, that prevailed? God has a right to protect and defend his own glory. And he will not let someone take his glory. But if a man feels like his self-reliance is what came through. And also, we have what's called free agency. Just like with salvation, if we choose not to repent, if we choose not to surrender to the Lord. If we choose not to surrender our will to His, He will not force His grace and His salvation upon us. We have to come on His terms. Yes, it's a free gift, like like many of the uh, false teachers like to remind us that it's a free gift and you just have to accept it. No, it's, it's a free gift that is offered on His conditions. Amen. Amen. So we've forgotten also that in our culture the word gift is like a present. But in, in that time, in that culture, mercy was also a gift. And if you pleaded for mercy if you threw yourself on the mercy of a judge or a court and he granted mercy, then he just gave you a gift. So anyway, the Lord will not force his salvation upon us as long as we think we can earn it. 
And likewise, if we continue to try to do the impossible in our own power, if we insist on trying to do things our own way, then the Lord won't force His wisdom or His blessing or His provision or any of Himself upon us. If we choose to do things our own way, He will honor our free agency, destined as it may be to fail miserably. But He'll honor that. So it's striking to me that He says, Peter, why did you doubt? Why did you stand in two different places? What made you be double-minded? What caused you to look away from me and to think that you could do it on your own? Or else, to stop believing that I could do it. Or to think that this petty little sea that I created could be stronger than I. There are various ways that can go. Sometimes we think we can do it ourselves. Sometimes we think the circumstances are beyond what even God can control. And to whichever of those extremes that we go, we've just become double-minded. We've just become doubters. And I know I'm, I'm the pessimist that will say, I'm not a pessimist, I'm a realist. When things are bad, I want to say that I'm a realist. Well, the reality is, life is tough, and I can't do it on my own. But the other part of that reality is that with God, nothing is impossible. And that's more real than any other reality I know. So let's be warned today that contrary winds are coming if they're not already here. There's still a work we're compelled to move forward in doing, but contrary winds are coming. And we may get weary. But at just the right time, Jesus will come. And it may be that He calls us or compels us to do something impossible, something miraculous. Something that is so beyond the scope of our own power that it could only be God. And when he calls us to do so, what a, you know Peter, was the, Peter is the only man in history other than Jesus who can say, I got to walk on water. What will it be Grace Church's privilege to be able to say for eternity that God allowed us to do? And for each of you individually, what will it be your privilege in eternity to be able to say that God allowed you to do with His help? But in order to have any of those, for lack of a better term, bragging rights, even though we're not boasting in our own 
powers or abilities, in order to have any of those rights, we have to be willing to step out of the boat. But when we step out of the boat, we step out in faith. Let us be encouraged. Let us be warned and exhorted not to doubt. Don't try to take two stands. Don't be double-minded. When we step out on faith, we must step out on faith. There's no room for self-reliance in biblical faith. In fact, biblical faith precludes self-reliance. Because if we could rely on ourselves, there would be no need for faith. That we may pray for this, we may pray for that, we may have grand plans and grand schemes. Most of all, we need wisdom. But if we're going to ask, let's ask in faith. Not wavering, not being tossed about like a ship on the sea. Even though we are a ship on the sea that is going to be tossed about. Let's ask in faith. Not be double-minded. Because as cool as it must be, and I'm speaking just, and I'm almost done, and speaking strictly in human terms, it must be cool in one way for Peter to be able to say, I got to walk on water. But the second he says that, he also has to be reminded that he doubted the Lord. That in the midst of doing the incredible, the impossible, the miraculous, he doubted the Lord and failed miserably. Do we want that? To have only half a bragging right that the Lord allowed me to take two steps before I started relying on myself and then failed? The Lord had great plans and had called me to do great and powerful and mighty things. And I started. But then I looked to myself. On second thought, those aren't great bragging rights, are they? Let's not be double-minded. Let's stand in one place with both feet firmly planted on the faithfulness of God. Contrary winds are coming. But there's work to do. We have to get there. But let's plant our feet firmly on the trust that God will empower us and enable us to do what he has called us to do. He will provide safe passage, but it's his definition of safe passage. He will provide success on his terms. And he will receive the honor and the glory. That's all I have.